you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Today, we're joined by expert on COVID, Dr. Paul Adamson, infectious disease specialist and assistant clinical professor at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Very good morning to you, Dr. Adamson. Good morning, Larry. Let's uh, talk about where we stand right now. Uh, We see continuing hospitalization uh, numbers drop here in Southern California, but we are seeing uh, some increases in the U.K. and other parts of Europe and Asia. Your sense of where we're at with COVID-19? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm still very uh, relieved that the cases here in Southern California and across the U.S. are going down. As you mentioned, hospitalizations continue to fall. Um, Those are all great signs. I think we're in a good place right now. Um, I do worry a little bit about what's happening in the UK and um, in Europe and seeing what that might mean for us here. Um, But I do think we are in a good place um, uh, at the moment. There's been some criticism, according to the L.A. Times, of Britain dropping some of its testing and monitoring of COVID-19 because I, I guess there are fears that um, then if there is an increase, the nature of that increase won't be as clear with that lack of, of ability to track. How how big of a downside do you think it is that they've dropped those programs? I, I sort of agree. I think they might have been a bit quick to cut back on the testing and monitoring. You know, when I think the U.K. had one of the best um, sort of testing and monitoring programs for um, COVID-19. And it really allowed them to act really quickly, um, you know, and have public health responses that were um, implemented on a timely matter. And so I think uh, for those uh, reasons, I think they were a bit quick to cut back the testing and monitoring. Um, And I think it's just a big challenge for public health and pandemic preparedness. As we've seen throughout this pandemic, um, you know, these interventions that we do in public health are significant. They require a lot of investments and funding and it often takes some time to see the full benefits um, you know, and sometimes the benefits aren't even seen because if you do a really good job at preventing, you know, future waves, you might not realize um, that uh, it was such a good intervention. So I think it makes it tough politically and they're expensive. And so I think sometimes the, um, the rush to kind of save money and, and uh, de-implement those programs is there. Um, but I just worry that they did it a bit too quick. If you have questions for Dr. Adamson of UCLA School of Medicine, we're at 866-893-KPCC. You can email us with your question at atcomments at kpcc.org. 
please include your location and your first name. Similarly, if you tweet at AirTalk, it's a great way to get your question, but please include your location with your Twitter handle. We appreciate that. 866-893-KPECC. Some hospitals have been reporting uncharacteristic numbers of type 1 diabetes cases, and the question is whether perhaps COVID-19 could be a cause of that. What, first of all, in what ways could a coronavirus like this lead someone to develop diabetes? Yeah, I know it's, it's interesting that um, you bring this up. I know this has been, um, there's been some scientific reports that have come out recently about this association with diabetes. Um, and I think it's interesting because it also is just another reminder for us that there's a lot about COVID-19 that we don't know and that we're still continuing to learn about. Um, and I think the mechanisms of, of this causing diabetes is not really fully understood. Um, you know, it might be that a, a really serious infection with COVID-19 can trigger um, inflammation and lead to a uh, direct attack of pancreatic cells that um, are responsible for producing insulin. Um, and that could, or it could also cause maybe serious dysregulation of um, glucose kind of metabolism through like a really big stress response to the infection. Um, and I think the, so that's, those are two ways that it might lead to it. And another way might be that it, um, you know, in some way triggers a autoimmune reaction, which, you know, then causes your body cells to attack the pancreatic cells. And that's really what um, is what we usually refer to as type one diabetes. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to tease out all this data because there might be some other explanations that, you know, might have to do with people's age, or um, they were talking also about, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, weight gain and increases in obesity um, throughout the pandemic, and those are also risk factors for um, severe COVID, um, as well as, you know, we use, for severe infections, we use steroids, which um, steroid use can also increase um, the amount of glucose in your blood oh. related to that stress response. Interesting. I also was wondering, and again, you said so difficult to tease this out is in association or causal. And, you know, with with kids who've had COVID and gone into the hospital, you know, we know that obesity is a risk factor for more severe symptoms of COVID. So I was just wondering if you've got some kids who are obese who wouldn't necessarily have been screened for type 2 diabetes. They go into the hospital with COVID, they're screened, and then now you see the increases in these cases. Again, that's type type 2 uh, linked to obesity. Is that also possible? Yeah, no, I think that you're exactly right. I think, you know, they might have been kind of living with either pre-diabetes or the stage kind of right before you develop diabetes um, or actually had diabetes but were not diagnosed with it. And then when they were, um, you know, had a severe infection that wound them up in the hospital, it was discovered that they had diabetes at that time. So I think that's certainly possible um, as well. We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson, UCLA School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist. Marnie in La Cunada emailed us, I learned on your program that the mRNA vaccines are being reformulated. When can we expect those reformulated vaccines to be available? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I know they're trying to do um, the reformulations, and I, I'm not 100% sure on when those are going to come out. I, uh, I my guess is going to be later this year. 
Um, but I'm not actually sure. And that's a, a space that I want to watch closely, but I'm not sure about that yet. You, we were told with the mRNAs when they came out, oh, this is going to be great because they'll be plug and play. You can, for variants as they develop, you know, very quickly isolate it, get it into the vaccine and get the new version out quickly. But that doesn't seem to have happened. It, it seems like it it takes as long for that to happen as it did with the original development for for the first strain of of COVID nineteen. Why is that? Yeah, no, it's it's a you raise up a really good point, and I think it's something a lot of us have been thinking about because that was like you mentioned one of the promise of mRNA vaccines, and I still actually do think that is the promise of these mRNA vaccines. You know, I think what we didn't know at the time was how you know quickly these mutations would emerge. Um, what types of mutations would emerge. And so, you know, you can imagine making a vaccine that was specific to, you know, the Delta variant perhaps might not have offered as much protection against the Omicron variant, or maybe there'd be a different variant that took place. And so I think what what goes into this is looking at um, how well the vaccines are working against um, preventing infections and hospitalizations and death. Um, And I think what we found is there's actually the original strain Uh, or the vaccines that are targeting the original strain have actually held up remarkably well um, in terms of preventing severe disease and hospitalizations. Now, with Omicron, they do work, um, you know, less well against preventing infections themselves. And so I think that, and we've seen that kind of trend go with each of these variants. And so while they're still incredibly effective for, you know, preventing severe disease, I do think we'll probably need to update them at some point to both keep the pr- protection against severe disease, but um, perhaps um, update it so that it al- also offers additional protection against infections. But as to when that's going to happen, you know, I'm not sure if we make one against, you know, an Omicron spike protein that might work really well against Omicron, but it's hard to know to anticipate what variant is going to be um, sort of circulating in the future. I think many of us are still hopeful that there will be some sort of a pan um coronavirus vaccine that shows effectiveness more generally against these these types of viruses and how realistic is that yeah i think there's a lot of people working on it um and it's uh it's i agree with you i think it's something that we definitely uh or should be moving towards and it would um, sort of solve a lot of these um, issues about updating it every you know with every new variant uh, Dr. Adamson, uh, Israeli healthcare workers boosted with a fourth shot of COVID-19 vaccine during the height of the Omicron wave were marginally more protected against reinfection than their peers who had received just one booster dose of the vaccine. This from Israeli studies that were released yesterday's compared to two initial doses and one booster shot of the Pfizer vaccine, adding a second booster shot reduced the rate of coronavirus infection by 30%. And uh, the fourth dose was a bit more effective than that at preventing COVID-19 symptoms. This published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In this group of Israeli healthcare workers, those who got the second booster shot, in other words, their fourth jab, were less likely to show signs of illness uh, by 43% over those who'd only had the one 
booster shot. Now, there were differences where it appears the protective effect was greater for older people than for younger people. So uh, what's the significance of this and the implications for particularly older people getting a second booster shot? Yeah, um, I think, you know, this is a a, a study among healthcare workers, like you mentioned. It's, you know, on the vaccine efficacy side, a relatively smaller study. But, you know, I still think it has some important implications um, for us. You know, I I think that it's really important that you mentioned um, that we're comparing these fourth doses to people who got um, a third dose. So I think part of that that goes into the math is the fourth dose is being compared to someone who already got three doses. And so it might look like they're not that effective, but really it's, um, you know, a marker of how protective the people were with three doses um, as the baseline. So I, but I think what you said was, was correct in that we, um, you know, I think different people are going to have different benefit to additional doses. And I think that's largely related to um, some uh, waning of immunity that we see in some populations, like, for example, immunocompromised or the elderly. Um, so I think looking at this data, at least preliminarily, I think, it, you know, you can make an argument that perhaps sometime in the near future, we're going to have an additional dose recommended for um, elderly folks. Um, you know, we already have an additional dose recommended for some um, immune compromised folks. But I, you know, I don't know if they're going to, you know, across the board recommend a fourth dose for everyone um, at this point, though, you know, it might be the further we get out from the, the most recent booster dose, it might be that, you know, an additional dose is needed. I think we have to learn a little bit more about that. Dr. Paul Adamson, UCLA School of Medicine, infectious disease specialist joining us. Lori emailed to ask, do natural antibodies differ structurally from antibodies created by a vaccine? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, so yes and no. I think the, the antibodies that are made, I think it's important to say that the antibodies that are made through an infection and through a vaccine are, are all antibodies that are made by your body. So your body produces, um, you know, uses B cells and T cells. They work in concert. Um, and the B cells are the ones that are basically producing all of the antibodies. The, the targets for which the antibodies bind to um, are slightly different depending on if you had an infection or if you had a vaccine. So the vaccine carries just the spike protein. So all the antibodies that your B cells are making are really specific to that spike protein. And so there are different shapes and configurations, but really they're made to bind that spike protein that was in the vaccine. When you have an infection um, and your body elicits an immune response to the infection, it sort of produces antibodies to a bunch of different um, aspects of the virus. We call it epitopes. So the, um, the antibodies are probably much more diverse. Um, they're not as specific to just that spike protein. Um, they might bind to other parts of the virus as well. So, so they're, sim- they're the same in the sense that your body produces them, but they're different in terms of um, where they might bind to. All right. Um, let's see. We also uh, had a question that came in yesterday, which I thought was a good one, from Rochelle in Irvine, who emailed, I received two doses of Moderna plus the booster of Moderna last November. Last year, those who got the J&J vaccine were recommended to get mRNA boosters. But she wonders, what about it working the other way around? Should she consider a J&J booster? And I will add to Rochelle's question, we just had that new study showing that J&J has done 
quite well, at least as well as the mRNAs when it comes to Omicron. So does this sort of revive the reputation of J&J and um, raise the issue that people, if there is going to be a, a, a second booster, that they should consider J&J for that? Yeah. They, so there's this idea of um, heterologous uh, um, immunization, which meaning that you would get sort of two vaccines of different uh, mechanisms, so an mRNA vaccine or a um, adenovirus vector vaccine, or you know, like the J and J vaccine, um, that might produce some additional immunity. Um, the, the data, at least that I saw previously, looked pretty good that a heterologous um, vaccination um, worked at least just as well as two mRNA vaccinations. Um, and so I think people who got the MR, the, sorry, the Johnson and Johnson dose initially, that's why it was recommended that they get an mRNA um, vaccine. But I, as to your question, I don't know if the J and J, I haven't seen any data that the J and J vaccine has been used as a booster. Um, you know, though perhaps that might um, come in the future. But I agree with you that I think the J and J vaccine, at least initially, there was concerns about increasing um, in risk of infections, and so I think that's what turn some people off for it. But as you mentioned, it seems to have held pretty well for um, a lot of this Omicron surge, at least just as well as the, the other vaccines. All right. Dr. Adamson, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, sir. We look forward to speaking with you again soon. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.